0: Good morning, um, good to see you all here. I'm Purna Sen, I'll be chairing the session this morning, where we're absolutely de- de- delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Rajiv Shah to the LSC. Now I, I explained to Dr. Shah this morning that I have a very long bio for him, but I won't go through it all and I have his permission to miss some bits out. Um, but let me tell you a little about him and then a little about what he's going to speak to us about this morning. Uh, Dr. Shah is the 16th Administrator of the US Agency for International Development, a post he took up in December 2009. Previously, he had been an Undersecretary for Research, Education and Economics and Chief Scientist at the US Department of Agriculture. And he was also the Director of Agricultural Development at the Global Development Program and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Prior to that, he was the healthcare policy advisor for the Gore 2000 presidential campaign and a member of the Pennsylvania government, Governor Ed Rendell's Transition Committee on Health. He is co-founder of the Health Systems Analytics and Project Impact for South Asian Americans and in addition he served as a policy aide to the British Parliament <laughs> and worked at the World Health Organization. Another important thing for us to know, I think, also is that Dr. Shah studied here at the LSE some time back. I'm not sure when. Um, but I think that's important. We always acknowledge that when we're here at the LSC, The connection is always important. Um, Dr. Shah is going to talk to us a little bit about uh, the reforms and the changes he's bringing to USAID and perhaps may also mention a little bit about Gavi. We've been uh, following that in the media, I'm sure, yesterday and today, and it's part of your visit. So uh, Dr. Shah will speak to us for about 25 to 30 minutes, and then we'll be opening up for discussion. Good. Dr. Shah?
1: Thank you. Thank you. Let me come over here. Well, th- thank you very much, uh, Purna, for having me, and thank you all for coming. I, I actually was a student here in 2000, no, in 1993. I was a general course student. I don't know if there are any general course students here today. Are there? No? You still have the general course, right? Yes. Yeah, OK, good, good. But th- th- And this room, I believe, uh, is very special for me. I got my lowest grade ever in an <laughs> econometrics course that was taught in this room. Uh, And uh, I also met my uh, now wife in the general course in this room. The two might have been related. Um, (laughs) She did actually considerably worse than I did, which I enjoy reminding her of on a a regular basis. A special thank you to Sir Gordon Conway who has come from Imperial College. Thank you Gordon for for being here and I appreciate that. Gordon has been a friend and a mentor and a colleague who uh, has just been such a strong leader in this work uh, and uh, in helping us think about what we should be doing in our development efforts. Uh, I thought, you know, I, I would just say one other thing actually as a student. When you when you come here from the United States as an American student, especially in 93, I forget what the exchange rate was, but the, the prices in London are pretty intimidating. Uh, and I just remember coming, being terrified of how I was going to eat after I bought my first breakfast sandwich at a little place next door. Uh, but but then pretty soon you realize that the, the loggers are subsidized on campus and everything seems to just work out. So so uh, this is really wonderful experience and it's a great chance to be back here. Uh, I I was hoping just to talk briefly about the the sort of moment we're in in terms of the work we do in development. Uh, share some thoughts on the reforms that are underway at the U.S. Agency for International Development, and how we're working with the U.K., which is something we're very, very proud of. And, uh, and I very much hope to learn from you and to hear your ideas and questions and comments. It's always uh, inspiring for me to go to campuses because we get our best ideas from, uh, from these types of settings. But, you know, the work uh, we do in global development is at a really special and unique time. We've never had the chances that we have today to bring together the technologies, the innovations, the partnerships, uh, and the solutions that now exist to tackle extreme hunger, extreme poverty, the lack of health opportunity that exists for hundreds of millions of people around the world, and to do so in a manner that generates really specific results. In that sense, the meeting that brought us to town, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, is just an absolutely outstanding example of, in my mind, the future of development policy and implementation. GAVI is an alliance that brings together private vaccine manufacturers, private philanthropists and corporate partners, governments from around the world uh, to uh, address a common goal and that is the goal of making sure that every child everywhere has access to a basic package of life-saving vaccines. And 10-12 years ago when we started this effort, it seemed like a noble and important goal, but it also seemed like it had a limit, that, that vaccines simply weren't a broad enough solution for the biggest killers of children, diarrhea, pneumonia, malaria. Now, we actually have a new vaccine for diarrhea, a new vaccine for pneumonia, and within a year or two, I think we will have big breakthroughs in a malaria vaccine. And our collective ability to put in place a system that reaches every child born on this planet will essentially help us bring uh, millions and millions of years of extra life to the most vulnerable people around the world. And so, so Gavi really does represent the future of what we're trying to do with all of our development portfolios and our assistance in the United States, and to some extent in partnership with the United Kingdom. And it also addresses this basic issue, for those of you that have been following this work, about whether uh, development assistance works, whether aid is counterproductive because it undermines local governance or creates power imbalances and all of that. And it moves us beyond those debates, and it moves us to a place where we simply ask, how can we make our investments work better? How can we generate more results with more specificity and more rigor for the most vulnerable? And how can we bring more partners to the challenge so when we need a new vaccine invented or developed, we can turn to the manufacturers and and support their efforts to do that? The, uh, my personal background in this comes from a deep motivation that, uh, that really for me started when I was a little kid. I come from an Indian-American family, which means my parents were first-generation immigrants to the United States. I grew up in a suburb of Detroit, which looks a lot like a suburb of any other city in our country. Um, and in that context my first visit to India when I was a little boy was very shocking, and I had a chance to visit with one of my uncles deep into some of the slums in Mumbai and had just never seen the kind of extraordinary poverty and suffering that I witnessed on that particular trip and when you when you have that experience when you're young in life you tend to remember the sights and the sounds and the smells and the the cries and it sticks with you and it very much is what has motivated me to pursue a career in this space Uh, But I really sort of developed my worldview on how we can tackle development problems by spending eight or nine years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which just helped me witness a set of uh, partnerships that came together in food security and global health and education that really were, were trying to say, with new additional resources, how can we best deploy these resources to generate really concrete and specific results in a focused, business-like manner. And I find that that background is now quite useful for me in the United States government, because in the United States we're having a debate about whether we can afford to continue to make the development investments that have allowed us to be development leaders for nearly six decades since the Marshall Plan after World War II. And we know that in order to win that debate, we have to convincingly argue That our assistance is cost-effective, evidence-based, and generates really specific results. We're currently spearheading two presidential initiatives, one in food security and one in global health, and I'll give you a little flavor of each of those. In food and hunger, the, the world's made a huge amount of progress, decade on decade on decade. But in 2008, for the first time in nearly 30 years, when food prices and fuel prices went way up, we saw more than hundred million people get pushed back into a condition of chronic poverty and extreme hunger. We saw food riots and famines disrupt societies and the world came together under President Obama's leadership at the L'Aquila summit in 2009 to address that problem. Global leaders made 22 billion dollars of commitments to address food insecurity. But perhaps more important than the money We decided we would collectively take a new approach, approach informed a little bit by one of my favorite books in this space, The Doubly Green Revolution that that Gordon has written. But it's an approach that really fundamentally prioritizes working with small-scale farmers in developing countries, recognizing that more than 70% of them are women and they need to be empowered and effective in order to drive real results. It's an approach that gets beyond the debate of whether the private sector has a role in agriculture and what is that role, and instead builds real partnerships with private organizations and companies that can help commercialize food systems, but do so in a manner that protects the interests and, in fact, improves the incomes of the most vulnerable small-scale producers. And it's an approach that really insists on serious donor coordination so that we don't have some partners doing small projects in certain parts of certain countries. And now from Ghana to Tanzania, from Malawi to Mozambique, we're seeing real strategies that have been developed where countries say, look, we will make, we will double or triple our domestic investment in agriculture and food security. We will realize that we're agrarian economies and use that to our advantage to create an economic development strategy that's fundamentally pro-poor. And we'll marshal and leverage the investment from the United States and the UK and DFID and others to make sure that we have an aligned strategy going forward. We estimate in 20 countries this approach can help move 18 million people out of a condition of poverty and hunger, including 7.1 million children who are currently extremely malnourished and this is important not just because those are stunning numbers in in development the numbers are just big and in fact it's easier to engage people when you show them a photograph of one child who's malnourished as opposed to talk about helping 7.1 million children who's malnourished but the reality is we can do this and if we can succeed in the next few years and show whether it's in Tanzania or Ghana or elsewhere in Bangladesh that you can really reduce food insecurity and hunger by 50, 60, 70% in a five-year time frame. I believe that'll be sufficient to reignite a major revolution of investment and energy in this space. And for the first time in a long time, we have some great new breakthroughs in terms of technologies and know-how that make it possible. There are actual crop technologies that allow farmers to produce more in drier and hotter growing conditions. There are new uh, foods out there that have improved beta-carotene and vitamin A and better nutrition properties, so when children consume them, they're protected from diarrhea and blindness and, and suffering. And we're figuring out how to use perhaps the most transformative technology out there, the mobile phone, to help farmers connect to markets get price information, negotiate better prices, and realize improved incomes. And all of this coupled with major new infrastructure investments in roads and port systems and trading systems can really unlock a huge amount of agricultural potential in precisely those parts of the world that are most vulnerable, yet have the greatest opportunity to improve their production and solve hunger and poverty, most notably Sub-Saharan Africa. So that's, that's one of our initiatives that we call Feed the Future. And we're incredibly excited about the progress that's been made and very optimistic about what's possible if we stay focused, continue to make these investments, and continue to recognize that over the next 30 or 40 years, as the global population increases, and as the structural demand for protein and, uh, and more energy-intensive foods, especially from emerging powers, goes way up, that there will be increasing pressure on the poorest and most vulnerable, mostly rural communities around the world. And our efforts in this regard can make a huge transformative difference. Another initiative we've launched is in global health, which in in where we believe that we're on the cusp of achieving some really dramatic results in fundamental improvements in health and human welfare. Yesterday's meeting on the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization was so important because immunizations are undoubtedly amongst the most cost-effective ways to save lives, and we now have some new vaccines that can really extend the reach of protection well beyond what was otherwise possible. But if you go back to history in development and look for big improvements in health outcomes, they've come from a combination of some new breakthrough coupled with a huge amount of political will and global effort to make that breakthrough accessible. You know, the invention of a polio vaccine helped get us from a situation where people literally spent months and months inside of iron lungs to deal with paralysis to a situation where we're near the eradication of that crippling disease. The invention of oral rehydration solution which allowed uh, mothers in particular to no longer have to find a doctor and diagnose diarrhea and figure out uh, how to protect their kid or what antibiotic they needed, and instead put in their hands the solution, the ability to create a a nutritious, uh, high electrolyte solution that they could just keep giving their children until the diarrhea passed, gave them the power to save millions of children's lives, and they did it. And, and it's one of the big success stories of global health. In the same way, I think we're on the cusp of some big, big new success stories, and I'd like to share just three or four with you. First, I think immunization is probably the single most effective thing we can do over the next five to seven years, and as we get new malaria vaccines and someday HIV and TB vaccines will be an important part of changing the landscape of global health. Second. We believe there are real opportunities right at the point of birth. You know, there are 1.7 million children that die in the first 48 hours of life, and about 200,000 women who die in that same time horizon every single year. And we've launched an, an innovative new project we call Saving Lives at Birth, which is a call for science and technology and innovation and ideas for how to really reduce the mortality and morbidity that exists in that specific window. And we know some of the characteristics of the solution. We, we know that women need to have a skilled attendant at birth with them in order to get through complications or difficulties. We know that you know uh, there are a whole range of technologies, I use that term very broadly, ranging from a low-cost uh, respiratory system that can help protect children to local creams and solutions that can be immunogenic and protect kids in those first uh, few days of life that we could reintroduce into that moment. And we know that we have certain drugs like uh, Uniject Oxytocin, which is a, an injectable product that prevents maternal bleeding, or Misoprostol, which is a tablet product that can prevent bleeding as well, that can really help save women's lives by the thousands. So a concerted effort to save lives in that first 48 hours after birth is I think the second big opportunity. The third is malaria. We've seen over the last five years tremendous statistical progress in reducing child death from malaria. In fact, uh, President Bush launched a program we call the President's Malaria Initiative that works in 15 countries. And just this past year, we saw data come back from seven of those countries that shows that by doing some very simple things, getting an insecticide-treated bed net, a a set of uh, improved drugs, a uh, residual indoor spraying of uh, insecticides in in homes and other efforts, we can reduce the prevalence and incidence of malaria significantly. And perhaps most dramatically, We've seen up to 36% reductions in all-cause child mortality from this program. And what that means is that we're not just saving kids from malaria. It means we're so effective at keeping kids out of the hospital from malaria that those hospitals can actually save children from other diseases. And so when we have an opportunity like that that's grounded in data, that we know how to uh, drive real solutions, We believe we should be doubling down our investment and focusing in those countries where there are still the greatest reservoirs of child death from malaria. And we believe it's possible to virtually eliminate children dying from malaria in five to seven years. Just to put that in perspective, just five years ago, we used to talk about 800,000 kids that died every year from malaria and what a huge economic and social burden that presented for in the mostly Sub-Saharan African countries where prevalence and incidents were so significant. So that's the third. I think the fourth is in addressing the challenge of HIV-AIDS. We've made huge progress in getting millions of people on treatment, partly through the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, which was another signature program that President Bush launched. We're now at the cusp of recognizing that AIDS, HIV-AIDS continues to be an emergency but also needs to be dealt with in a more streamlined manner. And we need to find ways to accelerate HIV prevention so we get the number of new cases below the number of new cases that are put on treatment and actually start a downward path for HIV around the world. And we realize that we need to you know, identify those areas of HIV prevention like preventing AIDS in children that, that are achievable and solvable in the next few years. And so just earlier this week, this week or last week, in the United Nations, there was a, a major meeting on ending pediatric AIDS, which I believe is very, very important in terms of seriously tackling uh, a part of the prevention puzzle that is solvable and will build confidence and will give people the sense that we, can, uh, that we have an alternative to, you know, to really do something about HIV AIDS in a structural way. But our agency does more than health and food. We also are implementing the President, President Obama's new development policy, which fundamentally refocuses our development efforts on good governance, democratic governance, and economic growth. And, in, and I just want to share a few thoughts on that. You know, there's been a long history in the governance community of debating whether governance is more important than development or development's more important than governance. I came from a place where I didn't know about that really exciting debate, uh, and <laughs> so when I got to USAID and I got briefed on these are these are what these people write, these are what these people write, and, you know, over 10 years of having this debate, it you know it seemed a little interesting to me, and the reality is we we now know pretty definitively that we need both, we need strong effective governance, we need real democratic aspirations. We're seeing throughout. The Arab world, Middle East and North Africa, that stability built on the fragile reality of uh, a lack of self-determination is not real stability, it's just the perception of stability. And that's why we have changed the way we work in those environments very aggressively. And in one of my favorite presidential speech lines of all time, President Obama, in his recent Middle East, North Africa speech, talked about how we will work with unregistered civil society groups. And for the President of the United States to delve into that level of procurement detail I thought was very exciting uh, because I thought only I got to live in that world. Uh, but, But it's so important and the point he was making was that we need to reach out broadly and support the aspirations of all members of society, not just governments and not just the largest, most organized groups and often the official development communities, USAID, DFID, others are more designed to work with large players and large organizations that can meet our sometimes rigorous accounting standards uh, and other things, and we're less designed to work with nimble young graduates of American University Cairo who are in Tahrir Square and who have, you know, civil society groups in name only, they're really these informal movements or networks that can get a lot done in the modern era as we've seen. And so we've actually restructured the way we work in Egypt and in a number of other countries to allow us to partner with and support those types of civil society groups more actively and more aggressively. And that actually builds on a very strong tradition. I mentioned the American University of Cairo because I had a chance to watch a television interview with one of the women who were, uh, who were one of the young leaders of the movement in Tahrir Square. And, she, and they asked her, well, where did you, where did you learn uh, how to do this and where did you get your network of people that became this movement? And she said, oh, I learned this in my social mobilization and, uh, and democracy class at American University Cairo. <laughs> and USAID's been a long supporter of that university, so I just thought it was a wonderful coming together of, uh, of a historic project that we did and the reality of, uh, of the technology and the internet that enabled what we saw in that environment. In economic growth, I think we're setting ourselves up for the same kind of transformation that we've seen in health and food and democratic governance. You know, for a, for a long time, the thinking on how to generate real economic vitality and activity in countries that are designated as low income or very low income, has been something that's externally imposed. Debt relief, policy conditionality, uh, you know, foreign direct investment, remittance flows. And all of those things play an important role. But in reality, most of the countries in which we work, whether in Africa or Asia or Latin America, have a huge amount of local resources that can be mobilized more effectively for their own development and their economy. Banks tend to sit on large amounts of liquidity and have conservative lending policies. And we've seen over time, whether it's microfinance for very small-scale borrowers or larger deals that are supported by credit guarantees like USAID's Development Credit Authority, that it's possible to unlock all of that resource in real local investment. We've seen that working to really improve the business climate and create transparency and contracting and legal enforcement can also rapidly unlock real economic vitality. And it's no surprise then that if you look across uh, the global economy, some of the fastest growing economies over the last decade, countries that have had ten years of five plus percent GDP growth, have been countries like uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa that has more countries growing at that pace than anywhere else. So there are real economic opportunities, and we're restructuring the way we work to be far more organized around the local private sector, local sources of capital, including debt, equity, and even in some cases trying to build networks of angel investors that can help start businesses and nurture and grow those businesses as the real change agents creating employment and innovation and economic vitality around the world. So to do all of this, you know, requires a seriously nimble, effective, and strategic aid organization or enterprise. And uh, when I joined USAID, it wasn't quite clear to me that uh, we fit that criteria. And so, you know, I embarked on a sort of period of learning and I would constructed a 100-day plan for my first 100 days where I was going to systematically go through each business unit. Uh, learn about what the strengths and weaknesses were, understand where the flexibilities, where we could cut red tape and really unlock real progress. And then about six days in, uh, the earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti took place, and more than 250,000 people lost their lives. Uh, and it was an absolutely all-encompassing tragedy that consumed virtually every minute of my first three months. But what I saw in our agencies and our government's response to that earthquake was really inspiring. I had staff from around the world call me and say, I know what you're going to deal with in three weeks in Haiti, and I'd like to go help prevent that problem. Or they would put in place new rules and regulations virtually overnight and say, hey, if we follow all our rules and regulations right now, we won't be able to get food to people who need it fast enough and we created a food distribution system that served 3 million people within two and a half weeks, the fastest, largest food distribution ever pulled together. People changed the rules to make sure as we trucked water in from from the Dominican Republic that we were distributing chlorine tablets along with the water so that people would use the tablets and have clean water instead of just water and we saw diarrheal disease go down in Port-au-Prince to lower than pre-earthquake levels according to a CDC study and analysis. And all of these great transformations, we used uh, cell phones to make payments to people in rural communities that were taking uh, migrants from Port-au-Prince and going back into rural communities during the tragedy, or we put in place a competition to create a true mobile banking system that would be a phone-based banking system for Haiti. All of these things came out of those first few months when people were innovative and excited and where we you know, essentially relaxed the rules enough to allow that innovation to rise to the top. And that led me to think that we should not just do this at moments of emergency, but that we should do this throughout our whole organization. And we launched a reform agenda that I call USAID Forward. And USAID Forwards is, for me, a very exciting seven-part reform agenda. I won't go into every piece of it. But the bottom line is, we took a hard look at what we were doing. We got the best ideas from our own team and our own staff. We didn't use consultants. We didn't use outside partners. And we said, we have a vision for the kind of aid agency we want to be. And we can change the way we do contracting and procurement to work with local partners and real innovators and small-scale organizations instead of just focusing on large contract partners. We can put in place a new evaluation policy that will insist that every major program gets a third-party independent evaluation, and the results of those evaluations go straight to a a new website uh, as opposed to being filtered in any way so the whole world can see whether we're succeeding or not succeeding project by project and we can learn from that and get better. We put in place a website called foreignassistance.gov that tracks and makes transparent where every penny we spend goes and over time I'm going to try and build that into a major GIS system that's modeled after Google Earth that allows us to have a real data visualization of where every single project and program is because for A long time in this space everybody talks about donor coordination uh, because it is important but it's also incredibly painful for anybody who's kind of sat through donor coordination meetings Uh, and I believe if you just put all this data out there in a way that's visual and accessible and useful to people who need it that they will coordinate themselves around uh, around a lot of this in a way that we as top-down bureaucracies would not be able to ever do. And we've changed our fundamental thinking about our goal and our objective. And this comes from President Obama and Secretary Clinton. The goal is not simply to get the work done. The goal is not simply as exciting as it is to save lives and end hunger and build democracy and promote economic growth. It's not simply to to get those outcomes and to get those results. Our goal is to do the work in a manner that builds the institutional capacity so that we're no longer necessary. And I will conclude with just an example, which is if you look at the Korean peninsula at night, I think you'll see the stark contrast between success or failure in global development. In South Korea, you'll see at night a country lit up with lights and energy and grid and economic activity. And in all that brightness is the reality of a country that started in the 1960s with a lower agricultural production rate than most East African countries, a higher child malnutrition rate, a lower education rate, but had effective development partnerships with countries around the world, invested in their education and their people, pursued a growth strategy that first started with agriculture and then transitioned to manufactured goods and, and technology and innovation. And today is not just the donor itself, but is also hosting the global meeting on development and you know, redefining the example of success. And in America, we have more jobs related to our trade with South Korea than we do have jobs related to trade with France. The opposite end of that spectrum is the challenge when things go the other way. In North Korea, you'll see at night virtually no lights. And hidden in the darkness is a child malnutrition rate of nearly 50%, is a huge amount of personal and individual suffering and poverty, and is the global instability that comes from autocratic regimes that don't make the right choices and don't engage the world in a right way. And so in the United States, we're at a very critical moment. We're facing serious fiscal pressures, as I know you are here. And we're having a real debate about whether we can afford to engage around the world as leaders and as development partners. And my argument, and our administration's argument, has been that we can't afford not to. That it is far more costly over time to deal with the North Koreas than it is to engage in real, meaningful, global, peer-to-peer partnerships with the South Koreas. And for that reason, I think this work is absolutely critical and represents a true challenge in our time. And I appreciate your interest, and I, I look forward to hearing your thoughts and your ideas. So thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you, Dr. Shah, there's so much in there. I've got about six questions of my own that I'm going to put aside. We have about just under 20 minutes, so if we're very good with time, we might be able to get two rounds of three questions, Okay. and I'll try, uh, I'll try to go to the bottom row first, and then I'll come up to the balcony for the second round of questions, but it does require everybody to be really good and ask a question, not give a speech. Um, so do we have mics? Can I start with the man in the green T-shirt at the back? I'll take three and then come to you, Dr.
1: Thanks, Dr. Shah. Uh, Just two very specific
0: questions for you uh, related to your reform program. Just wondering uh, where untying uh, aid fits into the equation and where the Millennium Challenge Corporation uh, fits into your vision. Regarding untying aid, I'm just wondering if uh, the USAID has plans to allow international contractors to to bid on the majority of USAID projects. Thank you. Um, Can we go to the lady at the back? to my left, <laughs> in the jacket, yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Shah, uh, for your presentation.
1: Ms. Julia Lee here from the University of Cambridge. Um, my question to you is that the UK DFID has taken on a private sector strategy, and I was wondering if you can talk about USAID and
0: the new development innovation ventures, where you're looking at sort of investing in technology innovation and future entrepreneurship growth. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll come in here somewhere. Um, Man at the back, just just beside you. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Very quickly, I'd like to congratulate Dr. Shah on your commitment yesterday. Uh, This is Joe from the One Campaign, $450 million from the US to Gavi over three years, and I think we all wish you the best of luck in getting congressional approval for that. Um, (laughs) In the latter part of your speech, um, many of the issues you addressed lend themselves Less favorably to the type of specific results you talked about in terms of health and agriculture. Um, And the types of innovations you talked about often don't have the evidence base uh, to guarantee those specific results. So I'd just be interested in hearing some of your thinking about how this results driven agenda, um, what the risks are, and and how you're looking to mitigate them. All right, thank you. That's at least one of my six covered. Okay,
1: great. Uh, Well, on, on uh, First, thank you. On the untying aid, we, we've actually been very aggressive about putting in place uh, a series of policies that are effectively doing that. We've seen, you know, in Afghanistan, for example, we've gone from 7 percent to 38 percent on our way to 50 percent of our resources that go to the local government as opposed to uh, U.S. partners in Pakistan we've gone from 12 percent to 50 percent and globally we've put in place a procurement reform agenda that is driving that very very aggressively so uh, the purpose there is not to necessarily quote unquote untie aid which i think is a good point but uh, but less objective oriented the objective is to lower the cost structure of getting the work done and to achieve results in a manner that builds the kinds of institutions that are essentially our exit strategy over time. Uh, On the Millennium Challenge Corporation, I'm a huge fan of MCC. Uh, I think they, uh, and we have learned a great deal from them on project design and evaluation, and, uh, and through a series of new efforts coming out of the President's Policy Directive, have worked in much greater partnership, especially in places like Ghana and Tanzania, around the overall effort to really help those countries achieve tremendous uh, changes and improvements in their agricultural economies. On, on Diffin in the private sector, I'm glad uh, you mentioned the Development Innovation Venture Fund. I'm very excited about that model. That's a We borrowed a venture capital model to construct that fund and what we basically, the theory of the fund is we want to have a very rigorous approach to learning about what works and what doesn't work in global development and creating the space for innovation, which is higher risk, but to do that innovation at smaller scale. So we have a stage one part of the program that will support a lot of different smaller scale efforts to find opportunities to lower the cost structure of achieving success. For example, we've, we've given grants to partners like a group that's developing a new malaria diagnostic. I don't really know how it works, but you basically take a blood sample in the community and you have a little analyzer thing that's attached to a mobile phone that then transmits the data. And if something like that could really work and get the co- and get diagnosis to work like that in the field, you would really change the whole nature of how we treat kids who have malaria and uh, allow us to save a lot more lives at far lower cost. It then has a stage two and a stage three that says, okay, if those innovations work in some small setting, can it work in multiple... Uh, different locations, can it work in many different countries, and how would you really take it to scale and each step of the way get rigorous evaluation data to understand you know how you might need to adapt the intervention in order to make it more effective at larger scale. Um, I, 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 we're actually in a dialogue with Diffit about uh, partnering in that effort and I think that's a very important example of where we want to work together. On the Gavi multi-year pledge, uh, thank you. And from those of you in the one campaign, I expect some continued help on this. Uh, you know, Look, at the end of the day, we are trying to do things that, that respect the fact that we're in a difficult fiscal environment and we want to lower the costs of success. Uh, by making a multi-year pledge, which is very hard for the United States to do because it's a totally different thing in a parliamentary um, system. For us to do it is a really, really challenging thing. The reason we did it was because that multi-year pledge allows us to leverage our money eightfold. For every dollar we invest, we're leveraging eight additional global dollars. And it allows for us to bring the prices down. The multi-year price volume commitments on rotavirus vaccine, for example, will result in a 67% reduction in the cost of that vaccine. So those are the kinds of things where I, I just think about it as doing doing business smarter. you know if we spent that same amount of money in an annualized way without the planning and the contracting and the negotiation that comes with a multi year pledge we'd basically be paying three times more than we need to for the most expensive part of the program, which is buying the vaccine so uh, I hope as as you all take this forward uh, you'll both recognize that the multi-year commitments for the US are very, very challenging to do, uh, but that when we do them, we need to get those kinds of results and value in doing that. And on the last question, I, you know, I thought that was a really good question. The reality is uh, we all need you know, a balanced portfolio, but we do need to be able to demonstrate uh, that every taxpayer dollar we expend is generating some specific outcome.
0: And I would argue,
1: that in uh, democratic governance or economic growth, you can document and describe a set of results in, you know, maybe less, uh, in just as powerful a way as you can in health or or agriculture. Uh, you might not be able to sort of count the lives saved as cleanly, but you can talk about the number of business starts, the number of jobs created, the number of um, civil society groups that, uh, you know, have, have, been cre- have been seeded and are growing. And in both, in all three of, all, all of these areas actually, I believe we tend to hugely overestimate what we can do in the very, very short run and also dramatically underestimate what's possible in the medium term if we stay focused and if we're persistent and, and manage against results and I think that's the story for Gavi as much as it's the story for our work in democratic governance. Um, None of this stuff happened overnight. Gavi is eleven years in or twelve years in and that's why you have the results you have and I expect in the Arab Spring and and elsewhere you won't see the results in months, you'll see it in in years or or in a decade uh, when you can look back and say that policy decisions we made ten years ago and our persistence against adversary, uh, you know, in, duff, in tough environments allowed us to see those good outcomes take place.
0: Okay. Thank you, Dr. Sharm. If we go upstairs now... Oh, lots of hands. Very difficult. Okay. Uh, gentleman over there to the right. Thank you. Uh... Uh, we have seen uh, a lot many developing countries, as you say, register impressive economic growth over the past few years, but also equally concerning is the increasing socioeconomic inequalities in these countries, which has the potential to lead to social unrest, uh, undermining the very achievements that they have achieved. So does, does is, do you think this is structural and uh, does, does USAID have any, any strategy in place to address this problem? Thank you. Thank you. Um, lady at the back in a backish in a blue jacket. Hello Dr Shaw, thank you very much. That was a very interesting presentation. Um, my name's Liz Wilson. I work on Agriculture for Impact at Imperial College London. Um, I wanted wanted to congratulate you on your leadership around the Feed the Future campaign and the presidential initiative. Um, We're very excited about that. And I think from our perspective at Agriculture for Impact, we would love to see DFID and other European governments engaging more in agricultural development initiatives. I wondered if you might be able to talk a little bit more about the opportunities for European governments to do that and how they might support that initiative and other global initiatives that are um, ongoing. Thank you. Thank you. We'll come over here. The man in the green t-shirt, please,
1: thanks. Thank you. Um, Many of the programs you talked about are very technical programs, the idea of vaccines and immunizations. I'm wondering if you could talk perhaps about some of the challenges USAID faces when partnering with other US government departments like the Military Department of State that have more explicitly political objectives. Thank you. Okay. Well, on, on the question of inequality, uh, you know, I think one of the things we have to do a better job of in development overall, it's not just USAID, it's, it's everybody, is understand the effect of our footprint in the places where we work. And I have felt, uh, f- you know, I've felt for a while that this is a field that hasn't done as good a job of really understanding how its expenditures empower or disempower different parts of society and knowing what that means. There's a very good study done by UNICEF that actually looked across a range of in- interventions and said which ones are the most effective and implemented in a manner that really did reduce inequality um, and which ones were the ones that were sort of captured by you know, elites or, or middle class. And if you look at that, I think they said malaria was the most powerful program in terms of really reaching Um, and and extending and reducing inequality in terms of program implementation. But that's why I believe, I just believe that this work, the science of implementation in this work is absolutely critical and it's a whole discipline and understanding that and knowing kind of what drives success or failure is very important and, and critical to that is sort of assessing the effect of our footprint. We haven't even talked about places like Afghanistan where the overall civilian military footprint on contracting, for example, um, is something that really deeply needs to be understood to understand what's what's happening in those settings. Uh, on Feed the Future, Liz, thank you. I think you could probably answer the question better than I could, uh, and I would welcome any ideas you have, or Gordon, if you have thoughts. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I just think this is the development challenge of our time. I think if you look at the data and the science of what we're learning about hidden hunger or child malnutrition. And you understand that um, all of the stunted kids around the world, you know, in Ethiopia it's 43 percent, in North Korea it's closer to 50 percent, in Guatemala, I was in western Guatemala, it's 72 percent in some communities there, that those stunted kids are not just smaller. They are uh, missing out on a chance to learn they are never going to be able to contribute as powerfully to the growth of their nations. They cause a 3 to 6% reduction in GDP. Uh, and, and the most tragic thing I've seen in a long time, now we have MRI brain scans that show the physical manifestation in a two-year-old or a three-year-old of chronic malnutrition. Um, and it's just shocking. Larger ventricles, smaller brain ma- gray grain white matter, more fluid, those kids, unfortunately, will never fully recover. And I, I think as we look at food demand and food supply over and population growth and economic development and all of the factors that drive the interplay there uh, over the next 30 or 40 years, uh, we can make some choices now that will go the right way and reduce that problem or we can continue to essentially not do enough and um, be in a very different kind of world in 2050. So I, I would hope DFID and the EU and others would step up the way Spain has. You know, Spain has offered a huge amount of leadership and I respect that a great deal. Uh, but this is an all hands on deck problem and it's one that's gonna require over time bringing in not just the development people but the agricultural policy people and the trade policy people and the technology regulators, um, and it's going to require a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world to change the way they think about food and agriculture. On USA, DOD, and state, we're one big happy family. We never have any trouble or problems <laughs> amongst ourselves, and I don't know what you guys are talking about. Uh, no, look, it, it's any uh, We've actually made, I think, real strides. One of my big surprises when I joined was uh, that all the senior military leaders were so open and welcoming and super interested in development. And the same is true for state. Uh, Although, you know, Secretary Clinton is a different kind of Secretary of State. She believes deeply in development and cares deeply about progress for women and girls in particular, and uh, so we have a unique and uh, really unbelievable advocate for this portfolio of work. That said, you know uh, the reality is I think you're dealing with this in the UK, we're dealing with this in the US. Development has got to be a bigger part of our national security strategies, our foreign policy strategy, and our basic moral mission in uh, articulating who we are and what we stand for around the world. And we've got to find a way, which I think is about results, accountability, transparency, a lot of the things Andrew Mitchell talks regularly about, to make sure that when we have the ups and downs of domestic uh, budgets, we maintain consistency in our engagements around the world the way uh, we try to maintain consistency in protecting our national security with, with military might. And I'll just go back to that Korean example to make the point that Not every activity in global development has to be motivated by an immediate physical threat to our national security, but there's no question over a 40-year time frame that we're more secure in this world with more South Koreas and fewer North Koreas, and I don't think anyone would question that.
0: I'm afraid I don't think I can take another question because I know Dr. Shah has to Head off to DFID very promptly. Um, So let me thank you, Dr. Shah, for a really interesting, wide ranging speech. I think to go into the specifics of the health initiatives and keep in mind also the big pictures of the development of democracy, Um, I think was really helpful to see that. Um, So let me thank you for that and thank you for keeping your questions short. It meant we got through quite a few, and apologies to those who didn't ask, including me. Um, I know how you feel. Uh, But thank you, Dr. Shah, and all the best for the rest of your trip.